this refugee crisis that we as a congregation have been actively involved in now for several years in finances as well as in mission trips is a reminder of the fact that not every crisis um, is on the surface, though terrible, there's opportunities for redemption and for the spreading of the gospel underneath. And hasn't it often been in your own life where the Lord has used personal crises as a means by which to spur you on in the faith and to grow you up in his grace? Some of the greatest challenges of our life become the greatest opportunities for redemption. And I think you're going to see that theme shine through even as we look at Genesis chapter 14 together. So let's turn our attention to the Word of God. You can look on with me in your worship folders at Genesis 14 or open up your Bibles to Genesis 14. We're going to pay attention this morning to the first 16 verses. Please give attention to God's Word. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Kedileomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, and Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, Twelve years they had served Kedileomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedileomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and the Ashtoreth Karnaim and Zuzum in Ham, the Emom and Sheba Kariatham and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazen Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zohar, went out. They joined the battle in the valley of Siddim, which Kedileomer and Elam, title, title king of Goem, Ampharel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, the four kings against five, now in the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschel and of Aner. These are the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do trust this, your word that has been given to us. You tell us that all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable 
for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so, Lord, we know that you have a word for us from Genesis 14. And we would ask now that we would not miss that word, but that indeed it would come forth and come clear to our minds and to our hearts, and that its impact would be powerful and would make an impression upon our lives, so much so that we would say our lives have been changed by dwelling in your presence in this word. Father, that prayer is only a prayer you can answer. So hear our hearts and are dependent upon you. And come and do with us as you may. But in all things, glorify yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's one of those passages, isn't it? That when we get to our readings in the book of Genesis, we look at this one and we think, why don't we just move on to the next chapter? Because we're not really sure how to say most of the words that are in the text. And it's very difficult to know what it is that's going on. But you can begin to see at the end of this text something of a crisis. A crisis, verse 11 and then in verse 12, that Lot, Abram's nephew, taken in as a prisoner of war, captured and carried away by the the strong four kings of the eastern Mediterranean. And you would think in the context of this passage and the devastation that's laced throughout that there's little hope of him surviving, his family, and his possessions. It's a place of great crisis. It's a place of great need. I couldn't help but just remember last night as we heard the news, you probably read it or watched it in the, the announcement of the death of Senator John McCain. Now, one who a few years ago was diagnosed with brain cancer and died yesterday afternoon. Many years serving in the Senate. Several time hopeful presidential candidate. One who had been actively involved in the government here in the U.S. for years. But you'll remember what he was really known for, Right? He was known for his military work in Vietnam as a prisoner of war especially. A man who, was, who had been shot down as a naval uh, officer and one who was a pilot and who broke both arms and shattered a leg and was taken into a prison camp and was kept in solitary confinement for no less than two years. Never thought he would survive and through a very amazing act of God's providence was ultimately released and has been touted and lauded and rightfully so as an American hero in so many regards. He was a prisoner of war, like Lot, in many regards. As I was hearing that news report come forth and was reflecting on Genesis 14, then I look over on my bookshelf and I remember that wonderful book, Ghost Soldiers. Maybe some of you read it. That epic account of World War II's greatest rescue mission. It's a story of 70,000 American and Filipino POWs who were forced by their Japanese captors to march over 55 miles through the Philippine jungle, what has come known as the Bataan Death March. Uh, many of them died, maybe even upwards to close to 20,000 of them died even on the march. That was in 1942. It wouldn't be until 1945 that, uh, that American Ranger soldiers alongside guerrilla forces from the Philippines actually came in and rescued a number of them, hundreds of them, from that camp. 
It's a wonderful recount if you actually get to read the, the, the account of it. The book is Ghost Soldiers, the epic account of World War II's greatest rescue mission. Amazing story, riveting story. It was actually in, made into a movie that some of you may have seen called The Great Raid. I think that was in early 2000s that it was, it was put out. But there's a beautiful little section at the end of that book where one of the American uh, Ranger soldiers comes in and he um, finds... Um, Several of these prisoners of war have been there for years, and we're, um, we're given this account. One prisoner wrapped his arms around the neck of the first ranger he saw, and he kissed him on the forehead. All he could say was, oh boy, oh boy. Another ranger, Alvy Robbins, found another prisoner muttering in the darkened corner of the barracks, tears coursing down his face. I thought we'd been forgotten, he said. You're not forgotten. We've come for you. It's a beautiful story of these men who thought we would never see the light of day of freedom again. We'd never be rescued from our captors. And then, through amazing military tactic and, of course, God's providential care, hundreds of them are released into a freedom they never thought they would taste. I have to believe that Lot must have felt something of that along those lines when Abram and his 381 men showed up in the, the northern wilderness of Dan after they've been taken into captive by Chedorlaomer and the eastern kings. That as Abram comes in with his happy band of warriors, he in a sense looks at Lot and says, you've not been forgotten. We are here to take you home. And when you think of that in terms of the context of, of this passage, I want you to see that what you're actually seeing played out on the page is the fact that there are two qualities of kings and two missions in the context of this passage. The, the two qualities of kings are fairly obvious to see. There's the kings with worldly power. Uh, these four eastern kings... Um, that come in from the Mediterranean to sabotage and lay siege to the five kingdoms there in and around Sodom and Gomorrah and the five kings that they represent. It's this power, this incredible strength that's presented. They wipe out everything that comes along the way. But there's a second king in this passage, and he's not called a king, but he acts like a king. And it's a king who operates according not to worldly power, but a king who operates according to divine promise. He is the promised ruler of this land. He is the one who abides under the promise of the land. His name is Abram. And apart from any expectation in the passage, Abram, with his little happy band of followers goes up to destroy these eastern kings who have done nothing but destroy everything in their midst along the way. And he's got this little ragtag bunch of 381 trained men. And he's going to go up against one of the major forces in the Mediterranean at the time. And by God's grace, he's able to accomplish his mission. He's a man who operates not according to worldly power or resources. He's a man who operates according to the divine promises of God. And he says yes to the Lord's call even when the prospects of victory don't look good. It's a pretty remarkable challenge. What you see in the midst of this passage is that worldly kings operate according to revenge and reward. But those who operate according to divine promise, who, who beat to the tune of the drum of the revelation of God, operate in motivation for rescue and restoration in love. 
That's a fundamental difference that we see in this passage. Now, why do I say revenge? Well, if you didn't catch it on all those hard-to-pronounce names and places, what essentially happened were these five kings in the southern part of the Salt Sea near the Valley of Siddam, which you've got a little map in your bulletin if you want to look on with me, so it'll keep you a little bit in the geography. You'll see some of the writing on there, too, to kind of guide you. Underneath where the Valley of Siddam is, those five kings near Sodom and Gomorrah and where near Lot was located have for 12 years paid tribute to Chedorlaomer and four other kings on the Mediterranean eastern side, right there more near the big sea. And in their 13th year, they decided, we don't like to pay you tribute anymore. We don't want to be under your authority. And so they had a little equivalent of the Boston Tea Party, okay? And said, we're not going to pay you anymore in the 13th year. And guess what? The four eastern kings didn't like that very much. And so they decided in the 14th year, we're going to come put you back in submission to us. And you are going to pay your taxes. And you will serve us and pay tribute. And they come down and they lay siege. And are victorious. And in the meantime, what happened? Well, Lot got caught up in all this mess. Abram's nephew, who had moved down towards Sodom, you remember from the previous passage, and who chose the land that looked like Egypt, down near Zoar, the Garden of God, as he talked about it, this beautiful place. But he had gotten next to the wickedness, we were told, at the end of Genesis 13, which meant it was a fighting people, a people full of division. And now Lot, who had chosen that direction, thought it would be the best place to live, we're told in verse 14 of our text, is now actually living in Sodom. He's moved into the inner confines of the city. So some time has elapsed between chapter 13 and 14. And now he's gotten caught up in this debacle. And we see him being swept away. Abram hears of this, and Abram, we see, acts heroically in the course of this passage. It gets really personal when he begins to hear that Lot, his kinsman, has been taken in all of his possessions, his wife, his family. They've all been taken by Keterleomer and the eastern kings. And we read in verse 14 and following that he begins to go off on his own mission to rescue, as it were, the POWs. He, he is, as it were, the American Rangers in the story I told earlier, going in in 1945 to get those prisoners of war out. And we see that Abram remarkably is successful and accomplishes it when on every earthly scale we would never have advised him to take a step like this. But of course he wasn't operating according to worldly power or resources. He was operating according to divine promise. Remember, whose land is this? Now that's a little bit of a trick question. Whose land is this? Well, Keterleomer would say it's his. But God has promised it to Abram and his descendants. This is Abram's land and his descendants, which means this is God's land. And it's not surprising that God's man is the one who is resourced by God to come forth into victory over and against every human scale or spectrum. Now, if you just pay attention to the pages of Scripture, we see that over and over, don't we? You remember when the people of Israel come out of Egypt? Do they come out because they're just really strong and prepared? No, they come out because God goes before them. 
Through his signs and wonders, he brings them out and he protects them and he destroys the enemies of Egypt. When Joshua went into the land of Canaan to take the Canaanites, was it because the Israelites were that much more well put together militarily than the Canaanites who had been in the land for a long time? No. He looked up on the horizon and what did he see? The army of the Lord. He saw the Lord of hosts had gone before him. When Elijah was before the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, and he's calling down for the Lord to show forth his power in order to relieve the threat that's before them, it wasn't because he was smarter or stronger. It was because he trusted in the God who had given him his promises that he knew he could walk according to, regardless of the situation. It's the same thing we see with Daniel and Esther, and we could go through them all, couldn't we? We see God going before his people based on his promises and us operating on his faith. Now, what's remarkable about all of that is just, well, really, how Abram responds in this passage. Because I don't think it's the way we typically respond, is it? And, and if, you, if we can, for just a minute, if you'll bear with me, if you can remember the context of this chapter, chapter 13, if you were with us last week, Chapter 13 is Abram and Lot not really getting along. Their herdsmen not really getting along. The land is too small. And they're, they have all kinds of strife and tension because there's not enough pasture land for all the livestock to be fed. And what does Abram do? Well, in his kindness, he goes to Lot and he says, Listen, I don't want any strife to be between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. So I'm going to give you first choice. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'm going to go to the left. Let's separate from each other for a peace and for the purposes of, of us being able to abide well together and not in the same location, but our own respective places. And Abram, as an incredible token of generosity, gives Lot the first choice. Abram's the patriarch. Abram's the one that ought to have the right to be able to choose for himself. But he says he defers to his younger nephew, Lot. And he says, no, I'm going to let you choose. And what does Lot do? He chooses the best land for himself. He looks at a wonderful, open, rolling hill in Middle Tennessee with a pond down below. And he thinks it's a great building site. And there's all this kind of livestock. And he looks over to the right and he sees like a desert wasteland. And he goes, that's for you, Abram, basically. I'm going to go here, you go here. And Abram goes right along with it. And unbegrudgingly, as the text seems to indicate. But now, let's just pan a little bit in the future. Now this nephew, whom you have shown such generosity and such love to, and has moved down towards Sodom, and he's gotten wrapped up in the pleasures of the world, and with this infighting and collision between various kingdoms, he's gotten swept up into the battle and taken away. How do you respond? Well, let me give you a couple of responses. One is, I told you so. I think that's the most natural human response in this situation. It's a superiority that says, listen, there you go, getting the best for yourself. You've gotten down there next to all of this wickedness in Sodom. I could have told you this was a problem. I saw it coming. How many times have you said that about certain people in your life, certain family members? Oh, I saw it coming. I knew it was headed that way. Now, if you hear yourself saying that, I caught this in my own heart because I do this, and it grieves me. If I see that, and sometimes you know what's really going on in me, is I'm saying, I am so smart because I saw all of this ahead of, ahead of time, and they are so dumb because they couldn't see what was happening. Now, I would never say it that way, you understand? 
But that's really what's going on in the recesses of my heart. It's a superiority thing. It's an I told you so thing. I see things better than you see. Rather than actually feeling the compassion and love that I ought to feel for the crisis they're presently in, I sit on my high horse and I look at my own wisdom and I think to myself, essentially, deserves them right. That's a tendency of her heart, isn't it? You'd expect that from Abram in the midst of this passage. Well, if he didn't do that, you'd at least expect this separate, the second thing. You'd expect him to be wise and play it safe. At, at the very least. Let, let's give him the benefit of the doubt with regards to his character, that he's grieved over the loss of, of Lot. But let, let's begin to think like, oh, wait, you know, Chetel Omer, he just laid seeds to all of the five kingdoms in the south. He, no one's been able to stop him. It's a growing kingdom. I mean, we don't have a chance to ever see Lot. Let's just, let's just, let's pray for him. Let's just pray. Let's pray for him and, and let's hope for someone with better equipping and, and a better army and, and, and more prepared to go in and maybe save him if, he's, if there's even anything to save. I mean, he's probably dead. You know, he probably didn't survive it, you know. I mean, that's the things. Are, let, let's, let's play it safe. If we just look at it from a human scale, he could even spiritualize it. Think about it. He's the one who the promises of God have been given. I mean, you know, the annals of salvation are going to flow through the loins of Abram. I mean, he, I mean, he, you know, he's going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. He doesn't have his son yet. If he was to, if he was to go down there and get killed, the whole salvation of the world would be lost. He can, on biblical, as it were, grounds, find a great way not to be responsible for the care of his kinsmen. Now, I point these two things out because I think these are very common. For all of us, when, when we see someone's life and their wheels come off and we warn them or we have from afar watched and, and knew it was going to happen, we, we in those moments are typically ap- operating from a place of pride, not a place of love and compassion. You, don't you hear that I told you so thing? It's, it's, a, it's a high horse thing. It's a, it's a pride thing. It's not with the people. It's not caring for the people. It's lost sight of the people. And it's full of self. The other, you know, be wise, play it safe. What is that? Well, it's just full of fear. It's full of fear. How many, how many times do we, we spiritualize or not do something based upon the fact that we're really just at the core afraid? Or, or we just don't want to get involved in other people's mess. This is a really complicated situation. He knows if he has to go help, then this is going to be hard, long, costly, life-threatening. And it'd be a lot easier just to stay at home and pray than to go do something, than to actually respond in obedience. Abram doesn't fall prey to either of these approaches. Instead, what we see with Abram is instantly he responds in faith he gets his 318 trained men, and he goes after Ketuleomer way north of Dan. If you look on your map, it's a long journey, way north in the, from, the, from the Sea of Galilee. He's, he's a long way from the... I mean, this is not a day's journey. This is a long way for him to be able to go, to get there, to be able to do the rescue that he set his heart and his life to. He puts himself in harm's way in order to bring back the saving and the rescuing of his nephew, his family, and his possessions. He puts himself in harm's way in order to save his nephew and his family and all their possessions. Does that remind you of anybody? 
It should remind you of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it it a a wonderful thing that Jesus didn't, after we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, (laughs) didn't go, I told you so. Because he actually did tell us. He, He said, you know, if you eat of this, you will die. He didn't just sit back in superiority and say, I told you so. And, and, he, and he also didn't say, well, this is going to be complicated. I think I'll play it safe. But he instantly, in knowing that those and creatures in whom he's made in his image, in whom he has set his love, who have now lost their way, need his love and compassion. They need his care. They need his power. And he begins to spend it in being sure that we're brought home with all of our possessions, with everything that he has given to us. Jesus actually, if we consider his journey, didn't he leave the security and the safety of heaven? Isn't that what he did? To be born a a child in the manger, the most vulnerable and compromising position? Didn't he go like a warrior into the greatest conflict of heaven and earth there on the cross for us? Didn't he face the greatest crisis that any of us face, which is the crisis of sin and death? He not only put himself in harm's way, he put himself in front of the bullet of sin and death for us. He went there not just with the prospect of possibly dying. He went there with a steely-eyed commitment to die in our place. Not only does Abram in some small way look like Jesus, Jesus in some great way reveals himself to be much greater than Abram. That's what's remarkable when you begin to look at the pages of Scripture is this mission that Jesus is on and the service that he gives to us is not even worthy to be compared to the faithfulness of what we see of Abram in this passage, but we catch a glimmer of our Savior. Because in many ways we are prisoners of war. Now it's a war we started and it's a prison we built and one which we locked ourselves in. But Jesus, through Christ, has the master key. And from that master key, he has come and led us out through the fulfilling of the judgment of God and receiving the wrath of God on our behalf. And he has bought us back and he has rescued us and he's placed his name upon us and he's he's gone to prepare a place for us, a real promised land. And all of his possessions, all the riches of the heavenly places, he says, are our inheritance in Christ. You see, the fullness of this story doesn't even begin to capture it until you get down the pages in the narrative of Scripture. And you begin to realize this is the love and the care that our God has given to us. Do you see what I want you to hear really today, deeply, is that Jesus is saying to you, You have not been forgotten. I'm here to get you. That's what He has come to do. That is what He did on the cross. You have not been forgotten. You have not been forgotten. I have come to get you. And it may be today, very specifically in your life, that he has come for you. That you have not been forgotten. That maybe in some way you hoped to get away from his gaze. You maybe hoped he'd forgotten based upon the track record that you've been running in. But today he comes to you and he says, I've not forgotten you. I've drawn you into this space to hear this word from me And today he wants to draw you out of hiding. He says, I've not forgotten you. I've come to get you. And yes, your captivity is not Keterleomer. (laughs) 
And your captivity is not the eastern kings. It's not even bars and handcuffs. Your captivity may be resentment. Your captivity may be addiction today. Your, Your captivity may be the lust of the flesh. I don't know what your captivity is, but I can guarantee you all of us are prone to captivity. We're prone to enslaving ourselves. That's the language that Paul uses, to the things of this world. We're we're prone to thinking going down to Sodom is the best decision. And then we find ourselves in the lap of luxury and we hear the clank of the bars behind us. And we don't realize that we've been lulled into a trap. I don't know how it is that the Lord is coming to you today, but I can almost assure you that there's some kind of captivity that you need to be freed from. And he's coming to you by the basis of this passage to free you. But I want you to also know this. It's quite possible today that you know someone in crisis of whom the primary ways in which you think of them in your mind is, I could have told them so. Or you just don't want to get too involved because it's going to get messy. So you're quiet. And you're playing it safe. And today, Christ is calling you to go on mission. And actually care for your brother, for your sister, for that family member. For that one next to you right now who is coming to mind. You know who they are. The crisis that's in your sphere of influence. The one you're avoiding. That one. That's it. And it could be today that through the power of Christ, he's saying that's your mission. But I'm not equipped. I don't have all the knowledge I need. I don't have all the wisdom I need. I don't have all the men, the armaments. I'm going to get taken, t- taken to lunch by Ketelaomer. Friends, God does his best work when you're not equipped and he equips you. It is not your competency from where he does his best work. His best work comes when you are absolutely needy for him. He loves an empty soul from which to be filled and to be channeled through. It will be your weakness that will be his strength. It will be your brokenness that will be his mending And it could be today that those who are in your sphere of influence of which are under a crisis are needing you to speak up, to knock on a door, to bring a casserole, to intervene. And the moment that you do that is the moment you begin looking a little bit more like Jesus. Because that's what he did. And that's what he does. And that's what he will be faithful to do. Because right now you know what he's doing? He's carrying you to the finish line. Till you get home. That's what he's doing. I know you think you're walking. Some of you think you're running. But you're going to get across the finish line and you're going to realize that he was carrying you. All the while. And so by his grace, through his power, carry someone with you as he carries you both all the way home. 
Father in heaven, we would ask you to press into our hearts along that way today and make us a people who don't shy away from your call, but love your truth and in faith rest in your promises. Meet us here, Lord Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.